Great to see you. Welcome to Cedar Mill Bible Church. I'm glad you are here. Would you pray with me this morning? Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and clarity in which you reveal yourself to us, even the places that are mysterious. There's this heart to reveal who you are, to enter into relationship with us. And we want to ask that your spirit would help us be receptive today and to trust you and to live responsively to your word. In Christ's name, amen. Well, I have had a few jobs in my life, not a long list, but, you know, starts with delivering newspapers, and at one point I cleaned a lot of toilets, which was awesome, and then um, I sold guitars for a season in my life. Actually, I got paid minimum wage to play guitars and then send people to cheaper guitar stores because I was too honest to be a good salesman, and uh, anyway, that was fun. Uh, I, you know, worked for professors as an instructor or grader, but then really have spent about the last decade in ministry working in the church. So not a ton of jobs, but enough to know that when you want to find work, other than the experience on your resume, there are two very important factors. And that is what people say about you, right? Your references and the impression that you make, right? That first impression, the way you approach that employer, says the most about whether or not you'll find work. And then actually that's kind of true in all of our relationships, right? That we kind of have this interpersonal radar that that is kind of just weeding out people that we will, in fact, engage with. And, and so part of that is what people say about people, what our friends say about others, really determines how much we engage them and, and, and how we engage them, and as well as the way they approach us, just who... Who they are as they make an impression on us makes a huge difference, right? And so this morning we're going to be diving into the third part of our series called In Our Midst where we are looking at the gospel of Luke. And we're actually looking at the ways in which God has come in our midst. And as Luke narrates the beginning of the life of Jesus, we're being placed in a kind of interview, I would suggest to you this morning. Except we're not interviewing. God actually is the interviewee in the narrative that Luke is writing. And so, uh, on one hand, the entire Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures are, in a sense, God's resume. But Luke wants us to see the references that the heavenly host give for Jesus. And he wants us to see kind of the first impression of how God approaches humanity as he comes in our midst and so we are left to decide how we will receive God. And, and so let's kind of, with no further ado, get into our text this morning. So if you have a Bible, you can open it to Luke chapter 1, verse 26. Uh, I'm going to be reading out of the ESV. We have the NIV 84 in the pews, but we would, I'm, I've got the ESV up on the screen for you if you want to read along and not be kind of distracted by different translations. So here we go. Luke chapter 1, verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and he said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at this saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. 
and he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom, of his kingdom, there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be? I'm a virgin. And the angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who is called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. What a story, right? Like, what an amazing story. Uh, I want to suggest to you that Luke sets up the interview in such a way that we'll see three things this morning. The greatness of Jesus, the humility of God, and the response worthy of his grace. First, let's take a look at the way Luke portrays a picture of the greatness of Jesus. This is one of those scenes, right, where you just wish you could be there to see the look on Mary's face. Like, what? (laughs) Can you just imagine... Like being there, seeing her, just kind of shocked at this message. You're, if you're Mary, you're a 14-year-old girl, maybe 15. Scholars are convinced it's in that range, right? 14, 15, maybe 16-year-old girl, right? And you're engaged. You're betrothed. And in Jewish uh, first century society, to be betrothed or engaged was to be in the first part of a two-part process of getting married. It was about this year-long period where you're committed, but you're not... Like, together, right? So a bride price would have been paid. She would be legally bound to Joseph. And yet, they weren't together, right? So implications being they're not having babies yet. Okay, got it? So there's a ceremony coming, but it hasn't happened yet. And then this angel visits you with a message, you are favored by God. God is with you. He's for you. And what does Mary do? She says, it says that she's like troubled, right? And she tries to discern what kind of greeting this was, which kind of to me is an interesting thing, right? Like if God's happy with me, that seems to be a happy moment in my life, right? But she's troubled. So maybe she's just like confused. Like maybe you have the wrong 14 year old girl. Like I think you were looking for somebody else. And she's trying to figure out What's going on here? And the angel has this very unique message that in effect will be, Mary, your whole life's going to change. And because your life's changing, in fact, the entire world is going to change. All right? And let me show you why. The angel tells her, don't be afraid. All right? It's one of those interactions where you see an angel and you're like, whoa, I'm afraid. And he says, no, I'm a good angel. An angel of Yahweh. I'm for you. God's with you. Don't be afraid. Mary, you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and call his name Jesus. And he will be great. And he will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom will be no end. Which is totally what the ultrasound technicians said to us. Our kids. <laughs> Same funny no they didn't do that right i love that don't be afraid don't be afraid you found favor with god this is where we get that that term mary full of grace right because the word favor with god is actually the 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 word for grace you've been graced by god 
And in fact, uh, some traditions kind of misinterpret this as Mary is the one who's the subject of grace, that she's full of it and dispenses it, but actually she is more, according to the text, she's the object of grace. God pours out grace. He's favored her. Ephesians 1.6 says something very similar about us. Right? That we are ones who have been graced by God, full of grace, that he pours grace into our lives to be people who are also world changers. We become the object of God's favor. And what does that grace confer, right? Because grace isn't just this opportunity. It's not something to to hoard selfishly. It also is a responsibility. So what does this grace confer? What does the favor of God mean for Mary? The message is simple. You're going to have a baby. His name's going to be Jesus. He's going to be great. He's going to be called the Son of the Most High, which is synonymous with Son of God in verse 35. Son of the Most High, Son of God, same reality. And the Lord will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob, and his kingdom will have no end. This is really an announcement that her child will have a greatness that surpasses not only Mary's wildest dreams, but it will actually fulfill all of the hopes and longings of her people, Israel. It is a message from the angel that Jesus has this supremacy and greatness that is unsurpassed. And Luke actually has arranged his story to show us the greatness of Jesus. He wants to lead us to the conclusion that Jesus is in fact Lord of all. And in Luke, by the way, is the first volume. It's the first installment of the story. Right? Luke and Acts actually go together. It's a two-volume narrative. And the entire Luke-Acts story makes this claim. The central claim of Luke and Acts together is essentially that Jesus is Lord of all. And therefore, it's actually ultimately good news for all. Because Jesus is Lord of all, it's good news for all. And we'll look at how that plays out as we look through the Gospel of Luke. It's a really remarkable thing. So, in fact, Jesus is the inauguration, the coming of the fulfillment of the promise made to, remember this guy, Abraham? Anybody remember that old guy who has some kids? There's a promise made to him, right? Through your offspring, the nations will be blessed. And, and it's actually happening now in Jesus. John, or I'm sorry, Luke actually does this really remarkable thing. Uh, narrators in scripture put stories together and they establish patterns just so that they can break them, actually. Right? So rules are for breaking. Oh, wait, bad application. No. They establish patterns, and then they break them to make a point. And Luke has put the narrative of the announcement of John the Baptist's birth and Jesus' birth right next to each other. And in fact, they are mirror images of each other. Take a look at some of the elements that are exactly the same, story to story. First, the scene is set and the angel comes. Secondly, the person fears then the angel gives assurance in both stories. And then in both stories, the birth is promised and the child is named. And then there's a, the significance of the child is described. Then there's a question that expresses some doubt. Then the role of the Holy Spirit is noted. And then there's a sign or instruction given. And then finally it concludes with a remark of the significance of the angel's words. Both stories mirror images of each other. And yet Luke does this so that he can show you the differences and therefore highlight the point he's making. 
And the differences that he brings to mind show us, again, the greatness of Jesus. Take a look at the first one. John the Baptist is said to be great in the sight of the Lord. Pretty remarkable, right? Would love that for a reference. He's great in the sight of the Lord. Hire that guy. Uh, Or uh, Jesus, on the other hand, is just simply called great. What this actually means is that John, his greatness is qualified. It's a kind of greatness. He's great in the sight of the Lord. Jesus is simply great. His unqualified greatness. He is just great. John was said to be a prophet of God Most High. Jesus is called Son of the Most High. Okay, so Jesus actually isn't just a messenger. He is a messenger. He is a prophet, but he's more than a prophet. He's actually someone whose relationship is so intimate and close to God that the only reasonable word to describe him is son of the most high. John was said to be someone who is full of God's spirit. And I would argue that Jesus is too, of course. He is, he is, lives a perfectly spirit-filled life from Bethlehem to Calvary. And yet, he's more than just a spirit-filled person. Luke shows us that Jesus is conceived by the Holy Spirit in chapter 35, or verse 35. That Luke is showing us that he's not only someone who's full of the Spirit like a normal person, but he's also, he goes beyond that. His whole existence is entirely the work of God. His conception and birth is like no other. See, God had created babies in situations that didn't make sense before. Sarah, who is well beyond the childbearing years, right, has Isaac. Manoah's wife has Samson. Hannah has Samuel. But God has never done this before, where Mary will have Jesus without the help of Joseph. Right? See, Zechariah went home to be with Elizabeth, and then they had John. Like, we all know what's going on there, right? And then... Jesus, right? There's no Joseph involved here, right? And the, all, there's all kinds of interesting things and questions about the, the virgin conception of Jesus. But the point Luke is making is this. Jesus is a child like no other. No one else is like him. He is a child like all of us. He is not less than human. But there's something more to him. He's a child like no other. And this greatness is reflected in the fact that he enters the world through the work of God's creative spirit and not the procreative work of mankind. Because this is a very important point. When God brings his salvation into the world, his salvation is not dependent on us. It is thoroughly his work. I love this quote. It's a little bit wordy. Check it out. H.R. McIntosh says this, Supernatural conception is a most credible and befitting preface to a life consummated by rising from the dead. Like he ends the gig with resurrection. It fits the bill to start with virgin conception. Like, might as well. Like, if you're going to end like that, might as well start like this too. Jesus' greatness is not limited, however, to his miraculous entrance into the world. But it's also related to the fact that he fulfills the promise of God. He's evidence that God keeps his word, even if it costs him. And we'll see how that plays out. In one of the most important passages in all of scripture, 2 Samuel 7. You say that with me? 2 Samuel 7. It's kind of fun to say, right? 2 Samuel 7. It's a really important passage. And let me tell you why. Because in this passage, all the hopes of Israel hang 
right? It's because God spoke to the king David, right? And he offered this promise. He says, because right, David wanted to build this house for God. And he goes, hey, let me tell you how this is going to work. I'm actually going to build a house for you. I'm going to have somebody on your throne, David, forever. He will be called my son, and he will reign forever. Right. He will sit on the throne of David forever. He will build a house for God's name. This is the promise. And Mary and her friends and her neighbors and her family and everyone she knows has this passage memorized. And they know that someday God's going to put that king on David's throne and he's going to bring God's peace and God's rule and God's salvation and it's going to be good and it hasn't happened yet. By the way, do those words, those promise words sound familiar? Nah. It's what the angel's talking about. And, and so, not only that, it's repeated again in Isaiah chapter 9. I'll throw this up on the screen for us. In Isaiah 9, God promised his people that when he rescued them, when he brought his salvation to the world, he would do it through this Messiah, this king, this anointed one who would, in fact, be God himself. And it, this would happen in a strange little region called Galilee. Where is Mary? She's in Galilee. Okay, and this is the promise. For to us, Isaiah is speaking into the future. He's visioning into the future and he sees this. For to us, a child is born. To us is a son given. And the government shall be on his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice, with righteousness, from this time and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And the angel tells Mary that God's promises to Israel to do that, to bring the Messiah who will reign with justice and righteousness, It's happening right now, and it's all wrapped up in Jesus who's in her womb. What about that? Man, can you get a better reference than that? No, like, can can anybody say anything better than like, this is the Lord's anointed, it's the fulfillment of God's promises, this is the one. Like, that's the greatest reference possible. So by the way, just quick application for us today. Do we see Jesus as more than just a good religious figure? Do we relate to Jesus on an everyday, every moment basis where he's more than just a good teacher, where that he's somebody who offers more than just a good moral example? Is he supreme over everything? Is he the king who rules forever in your life? And guess what? When a king comes, they summon our allegiance. Does Jesus command your allegiance this morning as king? Our, our relationships, uh, the things we invest in, the, to, the, the way we schedule our calendar, do those things reflect that we serve the King who is great and whose, whose throne represents justice and righteousness? And do we pursue that? Do we reflect that our allegiance is with King Jesus? See, Luke doesn't just tell us about the greatness of what's said about Jesus. He also tells us about the character in which he comes. He tells us about the humility of God. This is the next thing he shows us. It shows us the humility of God. So remember, biblical authors establish patterns and then break them, right? So they, they, they show you how things are connected in parallel, and then they, they make some things different to highlight their point. 
And, and again, going back to the pattern between the first birth story and the second birth story, we see some remarkable differences. In the first announcement, the couple is pious and they're devout. Like These are righteous people who are righteous in the sight of God. But in the second story, there is no specific mention about Mary's virtue. Right? She's only full of grace because God bestowed grace on her. She, nothing about how her track record is awesome is mentioned here by Luke. She's just a 15-year-old girl full of grace, favored by God. Luke's silent on her track record. In the first announcement, uh, by the way, the character that receives the message is an elderly male with status. It's not that high of a status, but it's a status. And in the second story, the character who receives this message is a young girl without status. Right? Again, like I said, most scholars think she's 14 or 15. What does that say about the people God uses? It's not, it's not the dude with status. It's the social person without status, the girl without status. And by the way, Luke, his gospel has, has more of a play on gender equality than, than maybe any of the others. It's a radical uh, a, a shaping of how women are seen in the Bible. We'll take a look at that in the months and year to come. Some really cool stories that Luke tells. But the first story, again, happens at the center of the Jewish life and society, surrounded by all kinds of important activity. It happens in Jerusalem, in the temple. And in the Jewish worldview, the temple is the center of the universe. But in the second story, the angel comes to Nowheresville. Right? It happens in the margins. It happens in a tiny town with a country girl in a place that's so unknown, Luke has to tell us what region it's in. Right? And so it's like he says, in the town of Galilee, he's writing to people who have no clue where Nazareth is. So he has to say what region it's in. And by the way, it's not in a very respected region. And so it's like, Bakersfield or something, right? It's like, that pl- like, ugh, like where, where is that? Oh, it's in Northern California. You have to like kind of go through there to get to Disneyland. It's Baker yeah. or Stockton. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, all right. So that's you know, it's like just nowhere. It's in the middle of nowhere compared to like New York City or L.A. or Paris or London. This is, this is what we're talking about here. Also in the first announcement, the, fir- the person of status falters in unbelief, but in the second announcement, the person of no particular importance is the one who has faith. And for all of the humble characteristics of Mary and Galilee, she bears the child who is far superior to John, even though, in fact, Jesus will say that John's the greatest man who ever lived in John chapter 3. But Jesus is the one who's far superior. And these differences show us something very important about the work and the character of God that's fulfilled in our midst. And that's this, that the work of God will be a work that turns everything upside down. This is actually one of the themes in Luke that is incredibly important. That when the kingdom of God comes, it's a kingdom that comes and flips the values of the world upside down. And we see it in remarkable ways in the story Luke tells. That the rich are actually poor and that the weak are actually strong. And that God works in the margins with the outcasts. Not the people you would think are important. So what does this say about God's character? What does this say about the way he approaches humanity? 
The way God chooses to bring about his rescue effort in the world happens by the most humble means necessary. Do you think about God's work like that? Do you think, I have to be great, I have to be something special for God to use me or notice me? You recognize God at work in the marginal places, in the, through humble means. Look at that lowliness of the Most High. He launches his rescue mission without sirens, without attention, in total obscurity through people who are social nobodies. Another way to put it is God is so humble that he keeps close character or close company with people who don't even register on the world's radar of importance. Just affirming again what the psalmist has said in Psalm 147, that the Lord lifts up the humble and he casts the wicked aside. Do we think of God as humble? Like, do, do we really think of God as humble? Uh, or does, does your concept of God have him associating with the lowly? Does being more godly mean for you being more closely identified and associated with the places that are marginal, with people who are outcasts? Because that's what Luke is showing us. And almost everywhere we turn, I think, in our society, God is being cast as this moral monster, this egomaniac, this control freak. And yet, Luke is making the claim that God comes to us utterly humble. How do we know he's humble? I would argue that the answer comes in the fact of how God expresses his humility. He expresses his humility in this story through total vulnerability. See, the message of the angel is incredible and totally surprising. It's this baby you're going to have is going to be the divine Messiah. Emphasis on this baby you're going to have is the divine Messiah. I mean, think about that. How much more vulnerable can you get than being a baby? We've got like three of them. And every time... I'm nervous that every, like, when they're first born, like, when they cough, you think they're gonna die. Right? Like, we, make sure they're not choking. Right? This is a good parental impulse. But my dad, I love this about him, he's a great papa. He's a great papa. But for the first six months, he does not like touching them or holding them at all. He's like, don't give me, don't give me the baby, like, I'll kiss it. But, right? Why? He does not want to break them. I'm like, dad, you're not going to break them. They're going to be okay. Right? And you just long for them to get a little bit chubbier so they have some padding and all that kind of stuff. And it's like, great. But wh- why? Because they're so vulnerable. They're susceptible. Right? They can, they're easily broken. All right? And it's really, it's really remarkable. God enters the scene by becoming an infant. He's humble enough to enter human history in total vulnerability. And you know what that foreshadows for us? foreshadows the way he's going to end his human life, to exit his presence in human history for a season, in total vulnerability at the cross. He enters vulnerable as an infant, and he ends vulnerable by putting himself on the cross. The idea of God becoming a person is this thing called the incarnation, God becoming flesh, taking on flesh, And this should totally reshape the way you and I understand God. You see, God is not the distant God of the philosophers, the abstract God of the philosophers. He is not the everything, everywhere God of Oprah. He is a God who has a name and a face. 
And he approaches us in total vulnerability, and his name is Jesus. And why is it so important to know the character of God as the humble God who comes vulnerable? Because guess what? You can't have a relationship without being vulnerable, can you? You can't have a relationship without putting yourself in a position where you can be hurt. Without vulnerability, it's just a contract. It's just business. But a relationship happens when people become vulnerable with each other. And that is exactly what God has done. Instead of loving us in an abstract way, he loves us concretely through his vulnerability. He puts himself in a position where humanity can hurt him. Right? Is that the action of an egomaniac or a control freak? No, it's the action of a God who is humble and loving and longs for relationship with you and with me. Listen to what Dorothy Sayers, famous inkling, says. I love this. The incarnation, the incarnation means that for whatever reason, God chose to let us be limited, to let us suffer, to be subject to sorrows and death. We now know that he has the honesty and courage to take his own medicine. He cannot ask anything from us that he has not exacted on himself. He has himself gone through the whole of human experience from the trivial irritations of family to the cramping restrictions of hard work and lack of money to the worst horrors of pain and humiliation and defeat, despair and death. He was born in poverty and died in disgrace. He suffered infinite pain all for us and thought it all worth his while. This is a a great summary of the heart of God to have relationship, to identify with humanity. Do you know this God today who makes himself vulnerable for relationship? Do you know him? Have Have you embraced a relationship with him through his son? See, that's why he came in humility and vulnerability. Don't waste that extension of love by holding it at a distance today. Embrace it, move towards it, lean into it, reach out to God in prayer and say, God, I want to know you. You've become vulnerable to know me. But the point of his vulnerability is ultimately to go to the cross, to absorb into himself that which is messed up and wicked and broken about us. Right? Uh, so that we could be given a new life in his spirit an intimate connection with him that transforms us at the very core. Because guess what? The rescue of God in our lives offers us not just rescue from sin and death, but a rescue to relationship with himself. And he offers it completely by grace, which is his unearned, freely given, unobligated favor. And it's given to us through Jesus so we can be forgiven and cleansed and know him the ultimate great king who comes vulnerably. So how do you respond to grace like that? How do you respond to grace like that? Let's look at Mary's response. It's remarkable. Mary responds to the angel. Doesn't she engages him? She doesn't just, she's not silent. She engages him. She does three things. Take a look at these this morning. First of all, she engages the angel with healthy questioning. I love this. She says, how will this be? I'm a virgin, right? Like, 
I know how things work. My mom had to talk with me, like we drove to the coast, and it was awkward, and there were pictures, and he, right, like, we, I get it. Like, I know how this works. (laughs) See, she isn't naive. People weren't stupid back then, right? And we have this thing that C.S. Lewis called chronological snobbery, where we think because we're further on the timeline, we can look back at those people and look down on them like they were dummies. Guess what? They knew better than we did how life works because we do life on a device that does, our wor- uh, does work for us, right? So they actually probably knew more than we do about how everything works. So anyway, all that to say, we're probably the dummies. And they had... They, they knew they weren't naive. Their worldview wasn't just this, oh, God's magical and he can do whatever he wants. They're like, I, God actually has given some natural means through which things happen. And they understood them, that there was cause and effect. And yet she wrestles and she asks the question, she probes into it and she's like, what? How can this be? Zechariah asked a question too and he kind of got blasted for it. And Dave, Pastor Dave talked about that last week and it, but Zechariah asked a different question. He said, how will I know? It was actually a question coming out of doubt that was looking for a sign. Mary says, how will this be? Very different questions, actually. Subtle, but very different. Mary, I think, is actually looking for more info. She's asking a good question. And for all of us, too, there's an application here. We should not... Just absorb blindly whatever we read on a religion blog or whatever somebody with the nice beard and glasses says up front in church, or if they're, especially if they're like a six foot tall guy, like, right? You don't just take it with a great, like, and just take everything at face value and just assume it's true, right? We should probe into things and question and go, is that really the case? And how does that work? We, should, we shouldn't even swallow scripture whole without first kind of chewing it through and actually seeking to understand it in the context of a community that will help interpret it. But questions and doubt and wrestling are such an important part of biblical faith. We need to be the kind of church that sits in these deep and personal questions without judgment and without fear because God's not afraid of our questions. And, he, and I think he invites us to question and to wrestle. And we shouldn't even be scared of what if this question leads to something that's, like, not right. Because what Mary is doing here is she's approaching God or pre- approaching the angel with faith that's seeking understanding. I want to believe, I do believe, but help me understand. Right? Help me get it. And... And our questions are good to a point, too, right? Once she gets that he's an angel of Yahweh, like he's a good one, she takes him at his word. Right? You question the spirit. You question the source. But when it's coming from God, it should be faith-seeking understanding, working towards, help me understand it. The angel answers the question. He says, the Holy Spirit will come on you. And the, whole, the power of the Most High will overshadow you. That's actually Hebrew parallelism. Uh, the, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, power of the Most High overshadow. Those are the same reality, that God is going to come and do a work that's unprecedented, and He's going to do a creative work in you, right? And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. All right? Mary's got to be thinking at this point, okay, this is the God who makes and keeps promises that's how he's going to do it, then that's how he's going to do it. I'm in. And the angel even kind of throws in, by the way, your cousin who's old is having a baby. So like, 
This is going to be okay. Go with me on this. All right? Nothing's impossible with God. God has the total power to accomplish this. And this is his word. And Mary responds to this grace not only with healthy questioning, right? This kind of robust, dubious questioning that's really healthy, but it's coming out of faith. She also responds to grace with complete surrender. Complete surrender. Mary says, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel says, Departed from her. I love this. I am the Lord's servant. This is the way Paul identifies himself in Romans 1. Paul, a bond servant of King Jesus. Right? That's how it, this is, this is, I'm at your disposal, God. I'm yours, God. Whatever you want to do in my life, God, I'm yours. Use me. Let me, let me be your person. This is actually surrender. Right? She, she probes into her questions. She's not a dummy, but you know what? She encounters a message here that she believes. And the only appropriate response is complete surrender because she's no dummy. How can we surrender? How do we get to that place of total surrender? We have to see him who surrendered heaven to come walk with us. We have to see him who surrendered everything to suffer and die at the hands of his own people so that he could actually embrace us, so that we could live free and experience forgiveness and cleansing and his transforming love. And when we see his surrender, we're able to surrender ourselves. Do you get it? And look to Jesus and so, do, do you see grace today as just another, I get out of jail free card. Awesome. Or do we see grace as something so dear, so costly, that it actually demands my whole person? See, Luke is showing us something. He wants us to see that the only response worthy of free grace is total surrender to the king who gives himself for us. And then finally, Mary ends with a willingness to pay the cost of the good news she receives. She says, let it be to me according to your word. Later, Paul will also echo her words and say, let it be. And in my hour of darkness, she is standing right in front of me speaking words of wisdom. Let it be. Oh, wait, wrong Paul. Sorry. All right. You know what? Nine o'clock laughed harder at that. And anyway... Seriously, though, seriously, Paul, (laughs) McCartney got it, right? All right, so seriously, though, Mary understands the significance and the weight of the gift she's receiving, that it actually has a cost. You know, she knows that what this is going to mean something for her. This isn't just like an easy thing. She understands that her community can count. Right? You haven't had your, you had your ceremony here, but your baby is this much. And in this, in that society, when the math doesn't add up, right, when you have the baby before you have the ceremony, rocks fly at you. Right? And that society, this would mean a stigma. This would mean alienation. This would mean further into the margins for Mary. And it's actually a situation for most of us that we'd feel like is intolerable. And yet, Mary looks ahead to the joy of God's grace in giving the Messiah, and she understands that the Most High is becoming vulnerable and entering history as the most low. And she pays the cost because his vulnerability transcends her own. His vulnerability actually empowers her vulnerability. And his cost makes her cost not only bearable, but even joyful. 
because she knows that this is for the glory of God and the good of the world. And her attitude is this, let it be to me according to your word. Okay, God, I'll go with you. Is that us today? Is that our attitude? That I want to pay the cost for the good news that I receive. That I'm willing to move with God out of my place of comfort and convenience and safety and security to do what the Spirit's leading me to do. To enter the conversations that the Spirit's leading me to have. To serve the people the Spirit of God is leading me to serve. To change my schedule so I'm more free to do what God's asking me to do. To rearrange my budget so I'm more free to do what God's asking me to do. To reroute my agenda for His because He's the King and He's great. But He came and He's vulnerable. And it means I can be too. So we probe in with questions, but we also surrender completely. And we are willing to pay the cost of following wherever he leads for the sake of his glory. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for Jesus Christ, your son who comes in greatness and in humility. And we thank you that he's worthy of our surrender, that he invites us to him and he invites us to fellowship, to be connected, to be related in relation to him. We thank you that, that, that this happens most poignantly for us at the cross. And this, t- this meal we're about to take, God, that, that reminds us of your total vulnerability and greatness and that just absolutely summons our faith and allegiance. This meal tells us everything. The bread that represents your body that you gave, the, the cup that represents the blood you shed, As we come and we receive that, we just want to remember again your vulnerability and your greatness and we ask God that you would encourage us and speak to us and move in us as a church to be your kind of people in the world for your glory. Amen.